Okay, we're live. Um, welcome to the Criterion Collective. Uh, this is a presentation of the DOS Center for the Arts. The DOS Center for the Arts is a not-for-profit based in Pomona, California. We service Pomona and the surrounding areas, and now that the world is on the internet, we service the world. So we're really, really excited uh, to be joined by a guest this week. Uh, we're going to be discussing uh, film, as always. So, Jim Marie, this was uh, it's your guest, your film. So why don't you introduce us? Well, it's wonderful to be here on Saturday, and um, I'm happy to welcome Paul Booth, who is the host of Talking Pictures, and he has been a tremendous advocate of women directors, uh, which I think is fantastic. And uh, at one point, we, he and I were uh, discussing uh, the uh, Shawshank Redemption, so I thought it would be totally appropriate today to draw from the Criterion Collection and review Gilda, the Charles Bedore uh, film noir classic starring Rita Hayworth uh, and Glenn Ford. Great choice. Okay, and, oh, that was your introduction? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know. Like you said, I host the show, so I'm usually the one like thinking of what to say next. So I'm just like uh, being on this side of it. I'm just I'm like, okay, well, what's we'll next? roll with it. <laughs> I know people are used to be, be me being far more verbose, but I'm trying to be. Well, so we could actually. I that's but that's good because what we can do. I think that there are a few of us. I don't know. Was I the only one that had seen this? film before this session had any of you yeah, guys seen i hadn't it? seen it i i mean of course okay. i've seen the iconic like clips of, of of rita hayworth you know like you know with her hair and, and these things but no i never seen that i never seen it all the way through <laughs> i was yeah, wondering who was gonna do it first i didn't think it would be matt <laughs> <laughs> no yeah of course morgan freeman i love hold on hold on i love when she does that with her hair yep <laughs> famous scene of course yep Oh, very iconic. Well, so and one of the things had both hadn't seen it. Okay. One of the things Paul brought up was he was already noticing different contemporary films that he felt were influenced by Gilda, which I thought was interesting. Because it is very influential and is very quintessential as a film. It it it's a very unusual noir. It's a post post-war noir, 1946. Um, by this time, we saw audiences who were, because film noir originally was more of a niche and it was, there was a group of studios known as Poverty Row. And film noir was considered very artistic and very organic, but more something on the low budget end. Hollywood wasn't really embracing film noir until after the war because what they saw was audiences who were no longer so innocent, who mm -hmm. wanted something more gritty, something that reflected more of adult themes um, uh, and, and crime. And, and so, uh, so this was among the first wave of the post-war noir films to come out of the big studios, right? right? So it, it has a lot of significance historically that way. Yeah, being, being Columbia and the infamous Harry Cohn, Con, I call him Con, even though it's Cohn. Oh. Uh, all the money he owes the Three Stooges, he's quite a con man himself. Um, 
But uh, yeah, no, I uh, Columbia and yeah, I like what you said about the dark time in cinema. Just to really quickly say this, uh, it's a wonderful life. Of course, we all see that as a happy movie, and I saw it on the big screen oh. one time, and it was kind of spooky. And then when you put it in the context of that, it's like Capra and uh, Jimmy Stewart were war veterans. So it's not like as happy-go-lucky as Harvey the Rabbit. And if you really think about it, it's not the most upbeat movie until the ending. I mean, a guy who's wanting to get rid of, you know, not appreciating his life. And so I always thought it was, I think it's interesting when films are, like you're saying, I don't know, they're meant to be something completely different, you know, like something that becomes a Christmas classic is actually coming from a really dark place. I, I just thought that was unique. So mentioning the post-war films, I just wanted to throw that in there that that was, I like that you said that. It's a Wonderful Life, in fact, was not originally intended to be a Christmas movie. It was released late, and they added in some of those elements later. Oh, okay. And it actually didn't perform that well initially with audiences. One of the reasons why it's become the classic that it has is because in a fluke in the 1970s, uh, someone forgot to renew the copyright. Right, and, right, and it was, and, and it was, and a lot of these smaller studios like Liberty or RKO, some of these things fell into the public domain almost by accident. And the that's right, it could be shown on any television for free. That's right. That's why that's somebody right. would do that. I remember that's, reading that. Yeah. That's one of the reasons. So ironically, that's one of the reasons how one of the ways it became a classic. It's a great movie, but uh, it fell into the public domain in the seventies. And that's how that happened. Some of the and people need to know. People need to know to never watch the color version. I would never do it, but there's a color version when Turner made all those movies colors. So, but anyways, uh, Gilda. So Gilda, what? Because uh, uh, Jean Marie knows me, I can go three thousand miles in the wrong direction of what we're talking about. So please, it's <laughs> <laughs> um, your show. So please set some kind of guidelines before I end up in uh, China talking about uh, Moneyball. <laughs> uh, I would definitely so uh, this is a film noir but I would definitely put this in a genre of romances uh, uh, stories of unrequited love set in exotic locales um, so 1939 um, Howard Hawks directs a picture Only Angels Have Wings with Cary Grant and uh, Jean Arthur I think but this is Rita Hayworth's first significant role. So she's playing kind of a femme fatale in, in that movie or a version of that. Um, but it's mostly in kind of what I think would be an action adventure film, a film of uh, great special effects for the time. Um, yeah, but, but it, it, it centers around this, this love between these characters and, and, and this conflict and the drama and the the, the, the passion between them. And um, so I definitely think that was an inspiration and that probably inspired Casablanca, which comes out 1944 or 42 rather. And I see that as being a big precursor to this. Um, a lot of the same dynamics, exotic locale, uh, musical numbers being involved. Um, a man who you know is he has all these walls up and he doesn't want to, and uh, and is an owner is is someone who's running the show so in gilda we have glenn ford's character very much like um the main character in casablanca's r really obvious uh character name like 
it's escaping me right now. Um, Rick. But yeah, the man who's running the show, who's running the place and has his duties um, to look after. Um, you mean Johnny Farrell, David, the, the character of Glenn Ford? Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah. Farrell. He plays that kind of role of that of that character who has all of these responsibilities, who's running the show. And um, this woman comes into his life, returns to his life. So that that that's a big thing too, is the past coming back um, in both of these movies, um, or all three of these movies, because even in Only Angels Have Wings, Rita Hayworth was someone that Cary Grant had had a previous relationship with. So very, very similar in that way. I think it's only, or I think it's also interesting that uh, Notorious, which is an extreme, even more similar to this film, uh, comes out the same year. So in that film, you also had Germans who may have been Nazis. In this, in this film, no one ever says the word Nazi, but they say Kraut, you know, German. Right. You know, they, we know that Munson and the guys that he's dealing with, or I don't know, maybe Munson is just vaguely European. <laughs> we, don't, we don't exactly know if he has real Nazi ties, um, per se. Uh, or how did you read that, Matt? I don't know. He definitely had like very, very European tendencies. They're, they're just kind of pan-European, uh, <laughs> kind of a pan-Euro accent. I couldn't really, couldn't really place it. It was like, but uh, yeah. Uh, no, how to, how, to, how to read the movie? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I enjoyed I really enjoyed it. It was, um, it was you know, you know, I, it fits obviously well with, with noir, but um, it was also like, you know, kind of like a comedy of errors. I mean, it was very genre bending. It was like a lot, a lot of different things happening. A lot of like, you know, and it, it wasn't so much like the film as a whole. It was like, there'd be like stretches, like, 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 like 10 minutes where it's like, oh, this is a different movie now. Like, or like, and then we're like, it would, it would be like, or, or it would be just, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was definitely, you could see its influence, not just on film noir, not just on like, you know, the kind of femme fatale kind of thing, but like definitely within, yeah, you know, like, um, I don't know if it's a romantic comedy, but almost, but you could definitely see like, uh, I don't know, like romantic dramedy. I mean, I don't even know how to describe it, but there was like this definite like uh, misunderstanding that that's at the core of this whole thing, and then this grand revelation, and it was like, oh my god, I've been a fool, you know, and um, which is you know kind of the core of of of, of most you know romantic films, you know, this idea that there this it's all based on some, it all hinges on some um, misunderstanding that in the end is cleared, and then. But most of those, you don't have a guy reappear like I'm not really dead, you know. Like so, that's kind of oh, right. definitely keeps it within the within the framework of noir. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, we have to get to all. So yeah, now we're we're talking about the Munson Munson character. And for those of you who are joined us late, because I know this comes up sometimes, where we are discussing the classic film noir, uh, directed by Charles Vidor uh, Gilda, starring Rita Hayworth and Glenn Ford, and um, Charles McReady. Yes, the great character actor Charles McGrady, that freaking scar on his face, which is real because he does have that scar when he like makes appearances on shows like Perry Mason later on and stuff like this. So he he's very he's his the way he plays this kind of stoic, unmoved it's almost like he's too polished because even when he's supposed to be affected by Rita Hayworth, which is supposed to be the one like crack in his armor 
it's like really hard to get that this guy's really moved by anything. I mean, yeah. he just right? Did you guys get that too? Like he's so stoic. It's like, wait. I, I didn't feel like there was a lot of like uh, the things that we're used to now with newer films. I didn't feel like I kept seeing more so characters and other things that's influenced versus like when you just said romantic dramedy. I didn't feel like it was like a genre movie. So I didn't feel like there was a place that it was going. I didn't feel like there was like plot points and changes. It's why I would just kept thinking of like, it really made me think of Casino. Like it really made me think of that Scorsese might've modeled De Niro and Sharon Stone after it. Like he's in charge of her. And then at the end, it's, you know, he's kind of just like, I don't want to say what De Niro says to her, but just once, a, you know, always. A, and so it just kind of seemed like she was just kind of floating through and going with what worked for her. And then, you know, the classic that they're, if two men are kind of interested and they're maybe fighting over a woman or something you do when you're younger. Uh, but I, I really just like, they felt like it was more of just a character piece. I didn't feel like there was something that I was like hanging on to. Uh, like, uh, I don't want to, it was probably the most entertaining film I've seen where I didn't feel like there was something at stake that I was like stuck to. Like, you mentioned Notorious, like I'm on the edge of my seat and I'm thinking, who's gonna do this? Who's gonna do that? Are they gonna figure this out, figure that out? Like, that's what I was really enjoying about it was I was just like loving it so much and it wasn't like I was like, who, 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 what, 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 when, when, when? It just seemed like, I don't know, I guess way before French New Wave to say that it was a character study piece, but did any, does anybody, does that kind of make sense what I'm saying? That it just kind of seemed like it was more, more like a study of three people than necessarily a objectives and what do you what do you guys think about that? Well, I, I, before you, before I, I really I really like the idea though about um about um I really like to mention Casino because I actually thought that myself like um the scene where where she's first inter where where, where, where he, he sees her in in the room and the, the hair flip the famous scene that reminded me so much of you know when she gets around remind me so much of um of uh Casino when when Pesci first meets Joe yes. uh, Stone. That, 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 that what exactly. it, what, Jesus, what have you been doing out here, Sammy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. That that exact that exact scene. I'm, I, it's definitely it's lifted right from there. You know, like and Sharon Stone is operating as kind of like you know as um, as Hayworth in that. And it's definitely it's obvious. I mean, it's just really obvious. Yeah. I told Jean Marie also. Uh, it made me think of Carlito's way. The way Pacino kind of comes back and then he's handed the reins. He doesn't take him over, and then he gets together with. Uh, Penelope Ann Miller and it's like his old flame and then you know just little tiny homages that's what I get I sometimes get distracted by uh influential movies because it's just like you it just takes me right out of it it's like okay this is that one scene versus I'm not supposed to be thinking about Casino while I'm watching Gilda you know so it's kind of like that's kind of the fun thing for me with classic movies sometimes is the kind of kind of the whole uh Chaplin's not taking from Spielberg. Spielberg's taking from Chaplin, kind of thing, right? Jean Marie, you see them? Absolutely. I think yeah. I mean, that's actually one of the things that always intrigues me because when I hear people talking about, it's ironic. I'm almost like the throwback because when I hear people talking about Top Gun, for example, I think about an earlier film called I Wanted Wings, which was the launch for Veronica Lake, and it was okay. William Holden. And, and, and there, you know, it, there were so many, it was very obvious that Top Gun drew from this movie. Okay. 
and this is not unusual. I mean, we're talking about Hollywood. So Hollywood right, does right, of course. like re recycle and re reinstitute re certain story plots and things. But um, that actually excites me that much more about Gilda that you can, when you were mentioning the things that you saw, the movies that you could see must have had some kind of influence. I thought that's pretty cool because this was the golden age. This was the part, you know, the, the tail end or the, the middle, I guess the, the I guess we shouldn't say the tail end, the height of the golden era. And this was when you still were seeing quite a lot of original content in Hollywood. Right. And so these things then inspired later films. Uh, I know, I think it was David Lynch who admitted that when he did Mulholland Drive, for example, he was very inspired by Sunset Boulevard. And it is interesting, oh, yeah. it is interesting how many filmmakers will reference films noir as influences, right. even if they're not within that particular genre. We talked right. about this last time too, is it a movement, is it a style, or is it a genre? And sometimes it can be all three in a different setting because right. you have westerns that incorporate noir elements and you have gangster films that incorporate noir elements and then you even have dramas and and you're right like i mean you look at movies like mildred pierce with joan crawford for example and that's kind of like some people consider that is it a noir or is it more of a melodrama is is gilda gilda has a lot of elements of a melodrama and comedy did you also you guys notice this too but the wake of films noir, and they drew this a lot from the old pulp magazines and the crime fiction, which is where a lot of this was drawn from Dashiell Hammett, who's still kind of considered to be like really the father of what became film noir. And well, not to mention, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, people don't always credit him, but his character, his detective character, some people say a lot of people were, you know, a film kind of film noir kind of was born out of that. And it's like, all the slang that was in there, you know, make hay while the sun shines and, you know, uh, you're such a stinker. And uh, like, this was an era where you suddenly saw this American slang become very prevalent in motion picture. And you see a lot of that in movies like Double Indemnity and certainly this one too, you know, these right. 1946 post-war films noir incorporated a lot of this kind of American slang. You're all cockeyed, Johnny. Just no, that's cockeyed. Interesting. <laughs> no, that's interesting that it's like a time where slang, uh, you know, not to go into like today too much, but it's like where slang, how now is almost like not frowned upon, but uh, it's. I always wondered when slang started or where it started or how it gets started, and so to kind of be picking up on stuff like that in dialogue or uh, with Gilda, I mean. I just felt like the, the noir thing, what, what you said about noir, what came up for me about things being in different genres was, uh, you know, I'm not endorsing Kevin Spacey, but uh, American Beauty had some thoughts of noir and not just uh, Conrad Hall's lighting, but just kind of the, really that whole, the, the plot can go anywhere and someone's being scammed and it's poetic.
to a lot, a lot of people say the themes of noir were uh, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances and this is another yes, reason yes. this fits into that you have you have these two yeah. people from america who met apparently in america who you know lived in new york and saw each other in nightclubs and she was a singer and he's a gambler and they end right. up meeting in argentina well one of the things about argentina what's interesting is that a lot of places were kind of you know unavailable during World War II. But there, you know, places like Casablanca or Argentina were still kind of neutral. So that's one of the reasons they chose locations like this. And ironically, you guys mentioned Casablanca and Gilda, but those were two films that were looking very, you know, exotic, but in reality, both were filmed on on the studio lots. Yeah. Oh yeah, you can tell, yeah, you can definitely tell those art locations. I mean, that's uh, I was speaking with a cinematographer the other day that we were talking about the craft of location versus set. And it was just like, it was really interesting to hear how much of the principles are just the same. So not to be too technical or get into that kind of conversation, but yeah, there was a real believability where I was just thinking, no, there's no way given that time that they actually let a crew go anywhere. But uh, what is Columbia, Jimri? Um, oh gosh, it's not on Fairfax. It's Sunset oh, Gower. Yeah, I was say Sunset Gower. Yeah, Sunset, Sunset Gower, Gower. Is, the old, is the old Columbia lot. Right. So it's just like, and we both know that's just like, that's not Argentina. That's like the seediest part of Sunset Boulevard there is, right? <laughs> so it's like, I don't know where you guys, David and Matt, live, but it's like, that's where you go, like, you know, I don't know, especially like if you were going to like go get crack or something. So it's like, there's nothing crazy going on. I'm sorry. I'm not, you know, I'm just. If you didn't want to leave Sunset. You know, where <laughs> it's not, it's not if you're lazy, you're not where to go for it, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, but it's like, oh, you it's know, because you had mentioned Sunset Boulevard, and it's like when people, people I know outside of LA, they think Sunset Strip and then Beverly Hills, and it's like, no, there's a whole other part of Sunset Boulevard. So it's like even that that part of Hollywood, you had just mentioned Billy Wilder and or Sunset Boulevard and William Holden, and I just wanted to say for for the audience, I don't know if I've ever heard Tom Cruise and William Holden mentioned in the same sentence. So sorry that I had to throw that out there. But uh, David and Matt, uh, I would love I'd love to know more about what you guys picked up. Well, you uh, know, up on we've been talking we got a lot about our first viewing. We've been talking a lot about the films that that were influenced by Gilda, but you know, it's interesting to like think about like some of the films that clearly influenced Gilda. I mean, the, and the one that comes to my mind is obviously Casablanca. And so I'm like, so I couldn't help but compare and contrast like uh, the character of uh, Ortega uh, to the character of Renault, right, in in in, uh, in Casablanca. So like, um, did I get that right? Is his name was it, was it Ortega? Who's Ortega? Mauricio. Wait, 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 wait. The police officer. Called? The police officer. What was his name? No, yeah, I thought oh. it was Mauricio. Oh gosh, why am I forgetting? We had a last name. Oh, oh yeah, Ortega. Oh, God, yeah, so I don't think they ever. Yeah. Obregon. There, there was some classism in there for sure. No, no, Obregon, Obregon. So like the character, the character of Obregon versus uh, versus um, Renault and the and the relationship that yeah. had with the uh, with the police officer versus versus in uh, Casablanca. So in this one, it seemed like it was very much like uh, it was it was very casual, and then all of a sudden it was adversarial, and then it was over, right? Whereas like in Casablanca, <laughs> there was like this whole thread of like kind of like slight antagonism kind of frenemy kind of thing for the whole time um 
So that was really interesting. I mean, while watching it, like that was that was kind of constantly right through my head is like, um, interesting. It's like this guy is clearly the Renault in this movie, right? This guy is clearly the Claude Rains of this one, yeah. right? And so, like, you know, where where is this going to go? How is this going to how is this going to develop? And um, yeah, in the end, you know, so I mean, I don't know, that that was kind of one of the things that was really running through my mind is watching the movie. It's kind of it's kind of odd, like watch a lot. You know, normally, you know, I'm I'm you know, it's 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 a weird thing to watch these films and like. Uh, and I think like I'm gonna need to have something to say. Thinking about what am I gonna say about it later? And so with the other films, I'd already seen them, so it was kind of like I could watch them again and okay, refresh my memory and like oh yeah okay that yeah. that'll be good that'll be good. So this one, but this is I'm watching it for the first time, so it was a really interesting experience watching something for the first time and not just really watching it, but watching it thinking of like all right that's something I could say, that's something mm-hmm. I could say. So. Um, so it's kind of it's really interesting, just like kind of trying to think about you know that and you know the backstories of of, of the characters involved, the backstories of the actual actors involved, um, you know, learning more about that and you know that was kind of my experience watching it. I got to say, uh, Munson is probably my favorite character in the movie um, because he's so weird. Um, he's kind of like a Bond villain, and I think that the movie actually really suffers when he's not in it. Um, and um yeah he has this weird cane knife thing so he's very eccentric right right away we get the scene where you know he saves uh johnny's life and he brings and he calls this you know this cane knife hybrid weapon that he has he calls it his little friend right so there's already something kind of perverse and like you know uh sexual about that you know and that re- he keeps referring to it as his little friend and johnny as his little friend so that's really odd later on he says uh that he's witnessing the hate between um gilda and johnny and he says oh you, you know your hate he's like the emperor you know your hate it feeds me you know he's in, in this <laughs> movies, you know and he's like your hate which emperor hate, sorry hate hate warms me it's the only thing that warms me. So, you know, the guy is a pervert, you know, the guy is, uh, you know, he's a sadist, you know, basically, right? So I, I really love that about him. And the scar, you know, is, is very Bond villain-esque, you know, so he's, he's, he's really a larger than life figure. And we find out that he's the leader of this cartel. And, but going back to the Johnny and the Gilda thing, what threw me off about the whole film is that okay i get that he has this like feeling of power and gratification overlording over um you know johnny right and he and he loves that he is married to gilda that he in another way is like controlling her but i don't get like why he keeps trying to push them together and then why it upsets him that they get together see if he's pushing them together like did he really think that they wouldn't that like is that what was driving him that that at the time for some reason like two people with a his a sexual history wouldn't get it on like i i don't understand that like i get if he was like you know some kind of weird or or, you know people you know whatever for any of you out there (laughs) into into cuckolding you know, if that was his deal, but I don't get why he gets upset about it when he's so eager for it earlier on. Do you think he's 
do you think he's testing them both? Does that fit his character that he would because he's always he's always talking about things like loyalty. Do you think right, he's right. doing it to test their loyalty? Is that right. might be what that was about? But Americans aren't that loyal. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's not in our national character. <laughs> Maybe he didn't know that. Maybe that's what he had to find out. <laughs> it is a weird thing. It is a weird situation to uh, have. I mean, I'm lucky that I have friends that I've known 20 years and I'm 41 that I know I could let them be with, hang around a girlfriend or wife of mine that they were dated or whatever. But you got to think what 13 years does or changes or so. I think there was a lot of undertones that were probably, let's see, because the studio system was probably starting to fall, even though it fell at the end of the 50s, it had to have started earlier and movies were getting a little bit more depth. So there probably was maybe some screenwriters playing with, uh, I don't know, was there an interest between the guys? And that definitely couldn't be said at the time. Was there, it, it just seemed like a big power play thing to me, which is the center of any great story, right? Or is the timeless? Yeah. It was weird. It wasn't nearly as weird as Sweet Smell Success, though. That was way weirder. <laughs> that guy's obsession. That was very perverse. I wonder but, if Harry. Oh, I wonder if Harry Cohen had it. No. You know, he, he, he bugged. He bugged the studio. <laughs> like this is a known fact that he like bugged to the studio, especially Rita Hayworth's dressing room. He spied on people. He, he was very oddly obsessed with Rita Hayworth Ooh. and controlling her. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of the McReady character in a way because he can't really he, he was never really able to fulfill her first husband kind of tried to throw her at harry cohen basically like mm. prostitute her and be like do whatever right. you have to do to be a star kind of thing he was really the one that was propelling her to be a star her first husband who was like really like a used car salesman or something wasn't even like in the business or whatever but i think it was in the oil industry maybe yeah well, or something and he a was lot of like, people in the film business are used car salesmen <laughs> <laughs> and 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 she never would but he was very very obsessed with her and of course she was his top star for quite a long time and you're right about the studio system because this was in three years of what they called the paramount decree that's right. where the senate ruled that the that you know basically the studios were monopolies because they captured both production and distribution. So they had to divest themselves either of their studios or their theaters, and they made a decision to divest. And now theater. it's ending. Now we're gonna see what's gonna come now, not to get off on that tangent, but that's really gonna be speaking of with that coming to a close and now that streaming can buy theaters and all that, don't mean to get off subject, but yeah, well, you just said that, so it came to my mind. Sorry. Well, I'm very upset about the fact that uh, apparently uh, Jeff Bezos, Amazon, they leveled the Culver Studios, which is where they filmed Gone with the Wind. That was the old David O. Selznick uh, studio over in Culver City. And it was beautiful and very historic. And I believe they leveled it. So you're right about seeing a different era. And of course, there's there's the uh, there's the uh, often sort of bitterness that goes with that. So we might see a whole new wave. It seems that there is a new interest in film noir and popularity with film noir people feeling a bit embittered, <laughs> people feeling like these are not as they seem, let's say. Um, so I think- Well, double indemnity, I mean, the, the awesome. COVID make somebody, the COVID, uh, the stories that are gonna come out of COVID with people getting rid of a sibling or their wife or can't be tried for it again. Sorry, bet, but 
we are at a time where they say mental illness is going up and, you know, unfortunately domestic violence and all that. And that plays into the themes of these movies. I mean, double indemnity and wanting to be away from people. And the, I mean, just basically guilt of that control and power. I mean, I'm not going so far as to say that it's a domestic violence thing, but uh, she was smacked around a bit. So it did come to my mind when we, you know, I'm glad you portrayed on screen and accepted. I'm, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry, you were saying. No, but I mean, to think back to that, that time that was so accepted, right? So controversy, you know, what Gilda's put through, goes through, um, sorry, or puts herself in, not deserving that, but um, I think anybody, any of us, we know if we have two powerful friends and we just happen to go out to dinner with both of them and we know that, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not going there, but it's, uh, there was definitely a little bit of, um, she wasn't dumb and she didn't deserve any of the abuse or mental abuse and it did get in that depth. But I think it was very reflective of uh, the time and what was probably acceptable in those times. I mean, especially if you're talking right after World War II, right? A movie comes out, and men just came home and now they're dealing with the kind of switch and dynamic. And I mean, that's what's kind of going through my brain of, uh, of, of the character and what was, especially with, with the way that violence was just fine. I mean, I've never heard stay away from Gilda or this or that. And I thought, and I was like, whoa, 1946, that seems more like 1967, but so that's something that I got out of Gilda. Yeah. Well, you know, do that again. What I'm getting out of this conversation, though, is 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 the way in which um, you know Rita Hayworth actually was was you know treated in life, and like the you know I was talking with her husband and, and the studio system, and so much of that 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 studio infrastructure that was notorious at the time for for a lot of things they did, these horrible abuses of of the actors and and and, and you know just, just in general just of the talent in general, but like of the women especially because it takes on that. That extra dimension that 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 um that really that really sexualized element of just you know horrific abuse. But then you, you that's not those times. I mean, look what just happened like three years ago. I mean, like you know with 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 uh, with Weinstein and and and, uh, and Miramax and it's not just him. I mean, this, this is all, it's all over the place. The whole the whole thing of the casting couch. I mean, so you know you see like these these um the, that that type of abuse and then and then you see like okay so that's what that's that's what's going on in real life, right? Now we're gonna cast her and 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 say like look at her isn't she wrong like you know blame her you know it's her fault right and like when that's like the way you tell someone to get ahead and then they do it and then you judge them for it i mean it's just the whole thing is really just um it's quite extraordinary i mean it's, it's quite it's, it's quite a game it's quite it's quite an extraordinary game mm -hmm. um but i will say though for like i was really shocked for like 19 for this movie coming out in 1946 like the amount of like what she what she was exuding on, on screen um right. uncommon for the era just leave it at that Uncommon for the air. I'm glad you got you breached that. I I'd love to hear it because David, I saw your eyes light up when you were like, "Yeah, yep," because it it was it was quite risque. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. There's definitely that introduction. The shoulders on full display. The hair. Um, probably the sexiest introduction of any character I've ever seen in any movie. Um, wow. Wow. Well, except for that, yeah, that timing for sure. I mean, I always think of, uh, hard to not think of <laughs> Marilyn Monroe and Some Like It Hot, but how's I just look yeah. at Google of films in 1946? They're not really going for sexuality with, of course, the, of course, if you guys haven't seen the best picture, best years of our lives, 
Very That's tough movie. It's about uh, veterans returning. They actually gave the lead actor an honorary Oscar for playing a veteran, and then he won his award. And then also a Razor's Edge. Bill Murray did a remake of that, but I've only seen the original. And so I'm just looking up here on a quick note of when we're talking about the uh, the sexuality and the references. But yeah, that was, isn't it weird to think that her flipping her hair back would even be considered like something to even notice? No. And be no, it's not weird. I don't know it's what not, and it turned so me weird. on. See the way she <laughs> oh I see God. a leg. I see her put her leg up and it turns me on. I see her take her glove off. At one point, Johnny puts a light, he 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 asks for smoke and he lights a lighter right. and he puts it down near her near his crotch and she bends over to light the cigarette by his crotch. This is an extremely sexual movie. There's a lot of innuendo in the dialogue. Um, yeah. Has anybody ever read uh, The Brother Karamazov? We've just mentioned that a woman is beautiful. I don't know if I can handle this. Yeah, yeah. So has anyone read The Brother Karamazov? <laughs> Brothers Grimm, no. I saw the There's a a passage in it when when Dimitri is describing to his brother Alosha his love of this woman, right? That his father is trying to like compete with him over, and he says like, you know, he's like, you don't understand, Alosha, just the curve of her toe, right? And he's like going off, he's just like going, and the way he describes her is like anything she does. So like Rhea Hayworth, I mean, I'm not a foot fetish man, and it's getting weird, but like what I'm trying to say. Is anything that Rita uh, Rita Hayworth was doing? It was it was it it, it exuded and it, it would exude, it would exude as such in 2020 as well. So it's just, you know, just the interesting it was, life story yeah. about Rita Hayworth, and I actually did purchase and read her biography. She never oh wow ghost wrote anything, but this is uh, Barbara Leeming, and it's titled "If This Was Happiness." That came from yeah, that came from a quote from Orson Welles. Orson Welles oh, right, being right. her second husband. Okay. And because when they were together, he was actually, he was running around and he was cheating on her. And she was, she had once said, this was, these were the best years of my life. And he said, wow, if, if this was happiness, I'd hate to think of the rest of her life. She was mm -hmm. born, of course, um, what is it? Margarita Carmen Cancino. And she danced with her father. Her father came from a very vaudevillian background. And it was said that her father was sexually abusive to her. And so pretty much from a very young age, Rita Hayworth was sexualized. I mean, we it's hard to imagine that she was, I think, 24 in this movie. She's so mature. Wow, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Women, oh, women, women matured very differently. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, it's hard, it's hard to even fathom this, that she, you know, in this day and age. But she was very, very... She was very sexualized throughout her life. And in fact, it was said that her third husband, I believe it was, which was the, um, the Ali Khan, mm. Prince Ali Khan, he, uh, they said uh, he had to watch Gilda before making love with her so that he could become excited by her <laughs> to, to, to an nth degree. What, what guy would admit that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean... And, and Harry Cohen said, we know where all her talent was, and yet you see her 
she sings put the blame on Maine twice. The second time was actually someone else's voice. It's hard to even believe this. They had people in the studio who sounded so much like these actresses. Right. You know, they had huge stables of talent. They called them the factories. You know, they were factories of, of movie making and creative making. And, um, but she can dance, she can sing. She's very talented. And yet he right. said, we know where her talent was because that's how he often saw her. So she was, she was hailed as a love goddess during this era. Um, right. Put the blame on Mame. That's a very significant moment. And I'm glad you guys were bringing that up because her dress had more like mathematics and engineering than like the cantilever bridge of how they were going to keep that thing up and keep it from falling down when she was dancing. <laughs> and when asked, I mean, Rita, who knew publicity very well, she said, um, they said, what held it up? And she said, oh, a couple of things. <laughs> so it's like, in reality, in reality, this thing had this really, like, really, like, complex bodice and everything so that when she's dancing, that thing's going nowhere. Like, and it is the whole thing. You're right. I'm, I'm with you, David. I, I mean, I find her to be extremely sexual, but in this very intriguing way. In fact, there are those who say, Rita Hayworth in this movie really wasn't a femme fatale. You know, you look at femme fatales, like we look at things like, um, we'll look at Barbara Stanwyck, for example, in Double Indemnity. Right, She's right. really a classic film fatale. I mean, she draws people into their doom. Right. You know, where Rita Hayworth is kind of in these circumstances. They, some refer to her as, um, what's the word? Intrigante. It's the French word for one who intrigues and one who finds themselves in these very unusual circumstances, not necessarily to any fault of their own. In other words, she can't help it that she's really beautiful and compelling. And that line that she issues, remember when she says, if they did call me a ranch, they would have named me the bar nothing. You know, it's, (laughs) she's, she's very come hither. You know, but she's using that because that's her power and she knows that, you know, you have Munson, whose power is in his money, is in his influence. And you have Johnny, whose power is in his freedom and his ability to go anywhere and do anything he wants to do as a man. But what, what about Gilda? That's, that really is in essence her power, which she has to use. So right. she's another person in extraordinary circumstances who we can't really find her blameworthy. It's, you know, I think the one of the core moments, one of my favorite moments is when she, you, you mentioned the cigarette lighting. That was so great. And the way she yeah. bends down and she really sucks on that cigarette. <laughs> and afterwards, afterwards, she's just about to leave. And she says, you don't, you don't think one woman would marry two insane men in one lifetime, would you? You know, you really, right? You really do feel, you really do feel a sympathy for her. You really do feel it. But what's so interesting is the is the arc, right? So like in in the arc of like a, like a double indemnity or or the other femme fatale, they're always introduced mm-hmm. to you as kind of like uh, innocent or like they're, they're neat or like oh my god, and the guy's like I need you to like I need you to be a man, I need you to roll up my sleeves and da 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 da, right? And then and then like as as the movie goes on, it's revealed like oh my god, this woman is a complete sociopath. I mean she's gonna she's gonna do whatever she needs to do. She's gonna kill anybody. Right. This is the end of my life, right? Um, whereas Rita Hayworth is introduced in this film 
that way. Like she's introduced as like it, it's put up front that she is um, this horrible man eater, <laughs> you know, like she she can't be loyal. She's this, she's that, and it's actually her arc that you find out. No, she's actually kind of the victim here. Like this is like this is actually really yeah. This is this is not this is almost like to make way. this is what you think of me. This is what I'm gonna do, right? Kind of like almost like not not necessarily a teenager, but kind of like if you're gonna keep saying I drink, then I'm gonna drink. I mean, yeah, right, exactly. I, I yeah. What I'm saying, I'm saying, but it's it's the opposite arc. I mean, I'm just looking at the structure. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite arc. Right. Like the other the other the other arcs will like show you someone is like very innocent and kind and good, and then reveal they are not, right? But this was actually it begins. She's not innocent. She's bad. She's this. She's she's gonna be the ruin of all. She's gonna be the ruin of everyone. Blah 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 blah. And it's actually turned out the opposite is true. Like the cop who says he she didn't really do all those things that you think she's guilty of. Remember that right before he goes to yeah. the, back to right. see her. At, I, you know, oh, he was, I was gonna say. I think one of the big turning points of her character is uh, when she comes to uh, romance Johnny by seeing him put the blame on me. Uh, with the guitar because you know it follows along with this this kind of progression of her character and trying to seduce him or at least uh, taking joy in trying to seduce him and seeing him you know wiggle and be frustrated but because uh, you know she's with all of the other men and dancing with them and going on dates and she hopes that'll work and it doesn't work so what does she do she uh, stalks him she comes into the casino at night when everyone's gone except for Uncle Theo. He's called oh, the character. And she serenades what? him. You know, what do you think? she serenades him with a guitar, right. which is actually very sweet when you think about it. It's very uh, manic pixie dream girl esque. You know, this kind of. It is kind of weird though, now that you're mentioning it though. Thing. Sorry. Because no, if about you that. think now about the big dance numbers. Yeah. yeah. Right. Are very seductive and and big, but that she would come just with the guitar, you know, expressly for the purpose of like trying to drive him crazy is, uh, yeah, I think it it signals the change in her character that she goes from being this all powerful, you know, vamp man eater to okay, there's some vulnerability there, you know, there's there's a side to her personality that we haven't seen. And I think what's one of the things that's interesting about this movie is that we know that they had a relationship, but unlike Casablanca or unlike a few of these other films, we don't know what the terms of the relationship were. There's yeah. a line of dialogue that says, you know, uh, uh, that Munson says, we are three people with no past and all future. Um, so I actually think in some ways that's a hindrance to watching the movie and understanding the plot and the characters motivations in some ways it makes it more interesting because we only have the characters are as they are now and we kind of have to you know see from the acting from the interactions from the staging we have to try to figure out you know what happened before but i think yeah tying into what matt said and what you were saying gene is that um yeah, she's a femme fatale in a way because she is this very confident, very sexualized, promiscuous woman, um, but she doesn't have a plan. There's no overall plan. There's no, she doesn't have a leg up. I kept watching this film waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, and like, has she outthought Johnny? Has she outthought Munson? You know, is there some, but she never had any plans. She just, you know, 
had her desires, you know, um, and she was a victim um, of, of all of these circumstances in the end. Well, you mentioned too the when she goes to serenade him, you know, and that is her voice singing that song. And Uncle Pio, I'm glad you brought up Uncle Pio because I was going to ask you guys about Uncle Pio in a minute too. That character, and he, because uh, he's kind of us, he's kind of the witness, you know, he's the philosopher, and he's trying to make sense of everything. And he seems to be the only one who does seem to make sense of a lot of these things. And he makes that comment, "I'm going to be here long after you're gone," you know. When oh, he I like that. to fire him and and you remember that that was the moment gilda when she serenades him she says you know she said mary on marrying on the rebound is so stupid you know so there are these little clues these little kind of breadcrumbs along the way and it's good it's interesting you brought that up i haven't really thought about that but you're right that because they are all three they're three people without a past unlike Casablanca, which has all of those flashbacks, right? right? Remember that? It has that whole we'll scene. Yeah. And what was significant about that was that Humphrey Bogart before Casablanca was not a romantic lead ever, ever. This guy was always, yeah, this was his first romantic leading type role. Prior to that, uh, Humphrey Bogart did theater and when he did film, he was often cast as a gangster or a former gangster. So this was a big deal that they showed. Like the petrified forest. He just right, like the petrified forest. Yep. Correct, correct, correct. Because we see into have and have not, that's where we start to see the shift. Right. Because mm -hmm. he actually marries Lauren Bacall, you right. know, who is his love in that movie, who's cast as that love in that movie, when she's like a 19-year-old model, you know, this the is her cigar first lighter scene. What's that? Again. The cigar lighter scene when she lights the cigar in the, the cigarette, yeah, yeah lighting yeah, each other's cigarette, cigarettes, yeah. and you, you know, cigars on my mind. Sorry, no, no, but you're right. I mean, it's it's I'm, the same principle. It's the same right, principle. Right. It's like you know, they they're the lighting of each other's cigarettes, and you know, you know how to whistle, don't you? You just put your lips together and blow. I mean, the sexuality, <laughs> the sexuality of the 1940s is very interesting because you still have this production code, you still have this Hayes code in place, oh, gosh, but you're trying to find code. ways to deal with that. And this is, I mean, honestly, David, I'm in awe because all these times I remember thinking, what is she doing when she's bending over and lighting that cigarette and sucking so hard? And I didn't even make the connection. I was like, oh, when you said it, I was like, oh my God, that's, I didn't see that. You know, oh, this, yeah. <laughs> he's right. I mean, it's like, oh my gosh. You know, they did it in double indemnity where like one minute they're just, they're holding each other on a couch and the next minute they're all laying back, like smoking. You're like, oh, this just happened and we can't show it. But sometimes the implication has a bigger sexuality like you mentioned her leg i mean they uh, cut to uh, they cut to her dissolve to her leg is in the air and she's pulling on that black nylon and that outfit she's wearing in that scene where she's talking about carnival and i just have that you know i'm very suspicious and i feel like this may be my carnival that dress is very sheer and you can just almost make out things that you're like whoa you know it's very risque but it's risque in a really really kind of intriguing kind of subtle sometimes not as subtle but i think that's where some of that sexuality comes interestingly enough which we now it's all out there 
you know, since in the wake of the, the, you know, the Hayes code being obliterated from the production code being annulled, now it's all out there, but you're watching this going, yeah, I'm actually more excited by what they're not showing by what they're implying. And like you, I think Rita Hayworth is, I can see why this catapulted her into superstardom. I mean, she was immensely talented and she had this kind of confidence and sexuality about her. And yet one of the reasons you'll notice all of her dresses, she walks in before the cigarette lighting, she's got this uh, fur in front of her stomach. Same with the dress with the bodice, it's got this big bow. She actually wanted that because she was insecure about the fact that she just had a baby with Orson Welles. So she was very insecure. Oh, yeah, she had a baby with Orson Welles. Wow, she had a baby a, with Orson Welles. And yet she wow. was hailed as the most one of the most beautiful women in the world, but she was also very insecure still. And a lot of these really, really beautiful women of the 40s, it's interesting, uh, Linda Darnell, Jean Tierney, Rita Hayworth, you know, they had such tragic, like personal lives in their relationships, you know, right. often feeling like they were being Judy used. Garland. Yeah, for, but being, being very talented, but feeling like they're being used for their beauty and what happens when that beauty fades. You know, I think it was Jean Tierney who said, well, once you stop being beautiful, you can be useful. I mean, mm -hmm. what a statement for a woman to make, you know, that these women, they, they really did suffer quite a lot. You know, it wasn't well, all- I, I can tell know. you, I can tell you, I understand because I used to look like Brad Pitt. So <laughs> things do get tougher uh, once you do have, you forget your ab muscles go away and you don't have those eyes and that uh, girls aren't stopping you. I found a picture of myself when I was 21 the other day and I was like, what happened? Like, <laughs> no, sorry. I, I did not mean to make a joke, but yeah, that uh, I just happened to, what it made come up in my mind is I have my, my uh, best female friend of 19 years, she, uh, she has been a model and she is a model. And so I have gotten to talk to her about like, what is it like when it's just like constantly people are making it about your looks or just like, sometimes you do want to open your own door at the store or you don't want to have somebody saying, do you need help with your groceries when you really don't? And it's just kind of like, you know, so that world, not the, not the abusive side. And I can't say, cause people seeing this will know who I'm talking about, but um, yeah, what you were saying, just so interesting. What's not interesting, sorry. What some of these actresses endured and it wasn't to like have gritty parts. I mean, what you're mentioning about Rita Hayworth, just me reading Wikipedia here and you would know this, but for, for if you guys, if Matt and David, you didn't know, I just learned this and for uh, the audience, I mean, to work with Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, and you're basically known for this film. And I'm not, to me, it doesn't, it, in a way it does devalue Bilda because it'd be like, if I was just known because I hit the gym every day and had abs, but I had worked with like Howard Hawks and Charlie Chaplin. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh no, but his abs, when he takes his shirt off, it'd be like, well, but wait, I'm, I can dance with two of the best dancers ever. And you just guys remember how I flipped my hair, which, you know, what if that was a mistake shot? What if like somebody revealed one day that she was just like getting out of the DP's light or something and it just happened to have been rolling? I mean, I, I, agree, I agree with the, the politics of what you're saying, but don't you dare denigrate the hair flip. That was. Oh, uh, well, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. 
I mean, that's, you know, I don't think there was 200 takes of it. I don't think it was a Kubrick movie. I mean, I'm just, hey, you know, I'm a Kate Hudson guy who used to have an almost famous poster on in college right next to my bed. So every time I woke up in the morning, the first thing I was Kate. So, the hair yeah. is really so the hair is the hair yeah is iconic i mean and you know she did say she did say they they go to bed with gilda and they wake up with me she was known for having said that that we actually we have a comment from the blessing audience. and a curse oh, a blessing oh, and oh, a curse. Ooh, a comment. Uh, uh, this comes from karina and she says uh it is said that rita hayworth hated being rita hayworth she married five times to five men that recreated the same traumas she experienced with her abusive father so yeah yeah you, you yeah. can definitely you can definitely see the pain of that yeah. good comment karina very good comment because that that's what it came down to where there were times where she felt very burdened by her beauty and in fact in the beginning it was said that she was not going to be such a great beauty um she went through painful electrolysis to get the hairline because she actually had a hairline yeah. that came down further um, they wanted to reduce the her ethnicity. So in addition to the electrolysis, they dyed her hair red or auburn in place. It was, it was naturally black because she was Mexican-American. And half Spaniard. Oh, wow. Spaniard. Okay. That's true. I'm, Thank I'm, you. That, you're right. Actually, you're right. Her, okay. her, yeah. although, although she had family no. members in Mexico, her family originated from that Spain, didn't they? They were, uh, they were flamenco world. dancers. They were flamenco dancers. That yeah. is an interesting world. My mom's white, or my dad's white, my mom's Mexican. So it isn't in the tiniest way an interesting world where you hear the derogatory comments from both sides when they don't know that you're part of each. So just in applying that to her and what she must have lived and, and what you guys said about her marriages and abuse must have been really odd here that for the, only her first <laughs> husband being five years, all of her marriages were only between two years and three years. So that's, yeah. I mean, after your third two year marriage, how could you think the fourth one would be longer than two years? So that's an interesting thing too there that plays into her psyche of what you guys were saying. Yeah. Before method acting, right? Cause we're not talking about how people might've been like, oh, well, I've been married four times. So I'll use it to play some great, crazy divorcee to win an Oscar. I mean, this is right where they're not intellectualizing like So yeah, that's a really, I think Matt, you had brought up the, the uh, or the, what was the name of the person who sent in the question? Karina. Karina, oh, great, 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 great observation. Thank you for that. that because because the, what it shows is that like the character of Gilda, um, Rita Hayworth, and a lot of the other women of the time who were hailed as these screen goddesses, you know, they were screen right. goddesses. And this was also during a time when these people were almost untouchable. The star was almost kind of someone otherworldly, almost untouchable up there on the screen. I mean, Veronica Lake's another example. She was really, really intelligent, but she was most known for her fall. You know, she was most right. known for the hair. Um, and when that goes away, you know, they said when she, the, the first time she cut her hair, she cut her hair to do a role as, as Peter Pan in the theater. And without her fall, she was almost unrecognizable, you know? And so that changed the course of her career. And so you have Rita Hayworth, you have someone who, 
people would perceive, wow, she's so beautiful. All these doors must open to her. She must be so lucky. And this is how she has this career. And yet Jean Harlow, it was said, didn't really want the career. She wanted the house and the kids and the marriage and never got that, you know? And that, so in a way for some of these women, ironically, it was, it was their immense beauty that got in the way of some of their happiness and finding love, which people often think the opposite. They must get everything they want. Mm. And it well, just is greener, right? Work. I mean, yeah. You know, it well, doesn't. What, yeah, really and, the, and the marriages that with the uh, Gilda, the insane to marry, what was it? The in, marry two well, insane. No. Yeah, you wouldn't think uh, one woman could marry two insane men in one lifetime. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I can. I was sitting there thinking, and he wouldn't care because I've known him 27 years. But I'm like, my friend's done it. Like he's married to insane women, and my life was kind of like, yeah, people do it. <laughs> like I can think of one and another, but I just too many friends might see this. But yeah, so that was kind of like a, a that was a astute observation. I think getting a little deeper than uh, if anyone in the audience doesn't know about the production code and the haze thing of films having to be run through a board and and what could be shown or said or seen. I mean, I would just, even with Gilda, I would love to see stuff that was maybe pulled or even from films before, you know, what did we not see? You know, yeah. what, not in a, in a perverted way, but just the, what was considered bad. I mean, just that, that always intrigues me too. And thinking about Gilda that the, uh, as we're talking, I'm just kind of thinking, I'm like, you know, there really wasn't too many things that I was like, oh my gosh, this is so sexual. But then, Right, we're so desensitized <laughs> this many years later. Right, I mean, how? You should I mean, see Dave's eyeballs. <laughs> Dave's no, eyeballs I mean, really, popped out of his face at the most. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I I see I see stuff on like nine or two and zero that was worse than Gilda. Like in high school, it was like watching a high school show that little teenagers watch. So that's what was, that was was really interesting about seeing this, you know, now for the first time and this age and having known about it for so long. I mean, I've known about it since I saw Shawshank 26, 25 years ago. So I've been waiting to see what the rest of that movie was for, for a quarter century. So that's why it was kind of just like, oh, why would they be showing this to guys in prison? This big deal. And now it's like, oh, I get it. You know, what you guys have all said. You know, I've, I'm really enjoying this because I've never gotten to talk about a movie. I've, I've never gotten to talk about a movie with people with a couple of other people who haven't seen it other than if we all went to the cinema so this is really intriguing yeah well, I, I i i can see i honestly can see how and i've said this before i can see how there's there's more of a smoldering as a full as opposed to a full-on burning there's a subtlety that I actually find more exciting and more intriguing the way even just like the dance she does and how she's slowly, you know, like <laughs> David mentioned the way she takes off her glove, you know, and then she sort of goes with the necklace and she's like, I've never been very good with zippers. I think subversive kids. <laughs> I think she's, I think she, I think Rita Hayworth definitely for her own survival learned a lot about how to work sexuality in a very subtle and very artful way. And I think we see that coming out of that. I, I think it would be very difficult for someone to pull that off who hadn't spent their life trying to sort of perfect the art of doing that for their survival, you know? 
And I see, I thought you should have seen David's eyes when you were talking, Paul, because I was powerful. The, the eyes, he was all eyes there for a minute. Well, um, where, where do you guys <laughs> think it's working versus just that it kind of is what it is? Like, that was something I learned from my friend where she was just like, you know, there's, I'm not trying to get a person to talk to me. I'm not trying to get something. It just is when I walk in a bar that three guys walk up to me. Like, I'm not remotely interested in the attention. This could apply to Gilda. So it's kind of like, I wonder with um, even and these actresses we talk about in the torment, it's like, it's kind of like, well, it's okay when it's, when it is getting you the free drink, but it's not okay when you don't want to talk anymore after the drink. I mean, it's kind of, a, it's a weird dynamic that uh, I'm really thinking about now. I'm thinking, I think I'm going to watch the film again after we talk. I have it on Amazon renting. I, cause well, I'm, I hear what you're saying. This is all in the context of like the studio and, 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 and society in general. I mean, things have changed a bit, but society in general being an all boys club, I mean, people can make decisions and make things happen. And you tell, you know, and you create conditions where the only way to, the only, the only thing, you know, what, what women in general are supposed to do is secure a good partner, secure a guy who can, you know, make things happen in the world. And, and that's like kind of the, the majority of what's going on. Right. And so under those conditions, like, what the fuck are you supposed to do right and then like you know so like it, it's not like it, it's a it's, it's a world of far far fewer options it's not like well she's just using sex to get ahead or, or blah 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 but well how what other what i mean we're talking about the 1940s what other options are there i mean like how would you get ahead? i mean how do you like gee I, i'm living on this farm i want to live in a big city what should i do you know like and and it, the answer might not be like you know be a film star or you don't have to go through you know the harassment of, of studio heads it could just be like marrying some guy who like, you know, who works in the oil industry, you know? So like, you know, it could be, it could be, it could be any of, it could be any of those options. So I mean, it's, it's all, those questions all happen within that framework. You know what I mean? Right. Well, and when that's your real estate too, I mean, you get to know your real estate early on. Ava Gardner at one point wanted to be a secretary and was planning to go to secretarial school. And then her brother-in-law who owned a, uh, a photo studio in New York, put her photo in the window and uh, a messenger from MGM said, you know, you've got, you should test her. You should really test her. Um, okay. You know, and, and, and the realization that that's, that, that becomes as an aspect of your value. Like Matt's saying, what are the options before you? You know, in the 1940s, during the war, certainly you could work. A lot of women right. had to work because the men were off fighting. But once the men came back and they wanted their jobs back, uh, a league of their own addresses that, right? With the oh, yes, with yes, baseball yes. league, you know, it's like, and then what do you do, right? What are the options before you? You can try to continue to work, um, but it's not going to be easy. There were women who did work and, and certainly in the United States, it was not as common as in other countries where you had less luxury, where working was essential in the UK. For a lot of women working was essential, but the kind of jobs you would get were not necessarily very high paying jobs, right? right? So if you were a secretary, if you worked in a factory or whatever it was, if you were in a very attractive woman, then yeah, generally the idea was you're going to use that real estate to the best of your ability. And the unfortunate thing was that, you know, eventually that real estate gives out because you're not youthful anymore now there are techniques of course we know but right. it's not the same I mean it, you reach a point where like Jean Tierney said and it's 
it's it is interesting it's in this movie i i empathize tremendously for, with gilda for me it is rita hayworth's movie it's her movie it's really the essence of her story you know you have this whole segment where she does this dance number in and what is it montaneo or whatever where she's in this club and she's thinking she might even marry this attorney remember who takes her back you know to the hotel centenario again and she's just doing this number. She's talking about love. She was. She said. She said amore, amore mio before, but it was just a game. And now it's real. She's her character seems to be legitimately even when she's using her beauty. She wants ultimately. She wants something real. And I think that's what's interesting about Gilda is I think that it definitely captures an essence of what it was like for these these starlets in the 1940s, that that is, that they were looking for that, but a lot of them never really quite achieved it because often their beauty, ironically, that gave them access to the potential of love got in the way of love, you know? And even though she walks off seemingly happy and you know, you kind of wonder in Gilda how happy it's really gonna be for these two. I mean, they have a pretty contentious relationship. They resolve yeah. some of that, but you don't know that it's not going to continue to get in the way. I love the Uncle Pio character, by the way. You know, yeah. how he identifies everybody. The, you know, there's the beautiful one and there's the, the, the defenseless one and there's the, and then he calls him peasant. You know, you, he spits like, yeah. you know, like this. So he was with the spitting, but I like it somehow. I don't know. It's working for this character. He's an interesting character. He's kind of the philosopher who sees it all. He's the only one who seems to have a fairly wide perspective. And I guess that's in part because he's the one guy who's not really invested. He's not a climber. You know, Gilda wants something and Johnny wants something and Munson wants something. And the defenseless one who, you know, we don't see it happen, but we hear it. Isn't that interesting? We're, see, that's one thing you were talking about, the Hayes Code, Paul, what we couldn't see. We can't see this man committing suicide in a bathroom. We oh, can right, hear right. We right. know what just happened. You know, it's, it is a movie where something is constantly being thrown at you, that's for sure. It doesn't right. really stop moving. It never really stops its motion. You know, but Uncle Pio is somebody who's pretty, he's pretty satisfied with his life and where he is. And the, ironically, he's the one character then who can see things the most realistically. What do you guys think about that? I'd love well, to hear what you think about that. Uncle Pio is the true hero of this film. Um, you know, he puts his own life on the line for love, you know, or, or, or at least what he perceives, you know, to be that. He, uh, he kills Munson, you know, after Munson fakes his death. Uh, you know, he puts him out of commission for good. He sees an opportunity, sees a weapon, takes him out. Um, but, you know, Pio, you know, he's charming and whatnot. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, the, the whole term uncle, you know, is problematic, like Uncle Tom, Uncle Pio, you know, this is kind of one of these racist stereotypes, you know, that shows up in film. Uh, but he is a great character. Uh, he's very lovable. He makes lots of jokes. Um, you know, he observes saints, as you notice, Gene. Um, but you do have to ultimately uh, call his uh, morality into question because, you know, he has to know that that uh, he's essentially working for a Bond villain, that this man is a, is an international uh, a crime a syndicate leader, a cartel leader uh, with plans for global domination. 
so you yeah. really and he witnesses a lot of these dealings going on so you, you know you Pio, you know yeah he's a romantic he's a philosopher and then but he also is the enabler of this terrible terrible thing that's going on uh speaking of terrible things and terrible people and uh, all this love to rita hayworth let me give a shout out to my man uh glenn ford he's not my man i i hardly know anything about him i just like it when people use that phrase <laughs> so anyways uh so glenn ford uh i think i think it was very interesting in this movie because he is not a handsome man you know i talk about uh casablanca or notorious these are you know handsome men you know with a lot Over of Huh? I, I always, yeah, I never thought of Bogart as handsome either. You're like an ugly wig. I don't know any woman is ever handsome. Honestly, I don't. Yeah, needs to be on a t-shirt. Handsome you compare Bogart to Glenn Ford. No, I've never heard, yeah, I've really never heard Bogart called handsome. Ever. This, really, this guy really doesn't have anything. You know, no. this guy. He's not even like handsome in an ugly way. You're right. He's just <laughs> handsome in an ugly way. He's an everyday. He's an everyday. Yeah. Yeah, and he's in the, that's he's the film noir way too. He's an every guy, you know. Fred McMurray, Double Indemnity, not yeah, oh, great actor. He's oh, he definitely Carl Malden. Handsome. Definitely taller, longer face. That's true. But what I like about Glenn Ford is that he's got this really offbeat character. Uh, this he's, he has this real smug. He he uh, alternates between um, like ignorance. And, and and smirking, you know, <laughs> it's a bit, it's a quality I see a lot in like uh, Jake Gyllenhaal would bring to his roles. Um, but yeah, I kind of like, and then he goes from that from being like the streetwise one to then being the uh, you know the faithful soldier in this film, you know, just kind of the man. Like he's almost trying to make up for his past deeds, or that he sees that this uh, club is his best opportunity in life. Then he goes full domineering, you know, loving to see Gilda suffer and uh, running this cartel, which I didn't really get. I didn't see, you know, aside from, I don't know, maybe the money, I guess, but I didn't, I didn't understand what the personal, like why he wanted that, what, you know, what, what that fulfilled for his character, or what his interest in that would be. Um, but yeah, I, I, we do see those three modes, you know, uh, of, you know, the, the scrounge, the dirty scrounger, the man who's trying to kind of like, you know, do whatever he can to climb up and stay loyal and, you know, sacrifice uh, for that. The, the powerful man. Oh, yeah. Okay. I see Matt maybe has. You know who he's kind of like? He's kind of like Joseph Cotton, but where Joseph Cotton is bewildered, he's like mm. smirking. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, like at the point, time where Joseph Cotton would be overwhelmed, like oh, I don't know what's going on here, right? Um, uh, uh, um, that's when Glenn Ford begins to scheme. You know, like when when Joseph Cotton finds himself overwhelmed, you know, Glenn Ford finds a way out. That, that that's that's and that's the difference. I think the implication is, and she's, I mean, at one point Gilda says to Johnny, she says, you know, you look, you look sick or so she, you look tired, you look sick. I don't know if you know that. It's like, it's like the more he controls Gilda, the more concerned he does seem to become about this cartel. It's almost like he, he's, it's almost like this, this corruption is making him sick. 
and where he didn't, he, before he recognized that Munson, he's like, whoa, he says to him, the world is a pretty big place when Munson says he wants to rule the world with this cartel. He said, whoa, the world, he's kind of, at that point, he's kind of aware that, wow, this guy's kind of crazy, you know, yeah. and he's kind of a fascist, he's kind of, you know, over the top, like a dictator almost, but he starts to almost become that himself through his control of Gilda or one kind of feeding off the other. But I, I have to say that as you were talking about Glenn Ford, what occurred to me is I just love that opening shot where it's like oh, elevator, yeah. elevator to like the pavement. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, where he's, it's like, wow, that's as low as you can go basically when you're going right. up to hit the pavement, you know, with your dice or whatever. And it's a rigged game and, and all of that. And, you know, so he knows who he is. I like that about the, I guess that's one of the things that I did like about the Glenn Ford character is that he does seem to know who he is from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, he knows he cheats at dice and he knows he cheats at cards and he knows he's good at it. Cause we get the sense that's basically how he's making his living is yeah. he cheats as a gambler, you know? And he goes around and, and he makes the comment about, I thought gambling was illegal in Argentina. And he says, it is. And he says, ah, oh, like back home. You know, he's like, he's kind of getting off on the fact that, okay, I understand how this works. You know, I can maybe make my way here, you know? So you, you do get the sense that there's something about this character that you can get on board with because at least he knows who he is and what he is. You, you and he's not lying to us about that. What's that? Just, sorry, you just made an interesting point about social roles of the time. Well, it made me think that, uh, you know, what, what we had kind of said, women, what they have to do to get by is that maybe it's more mentally, emotionally, and we won't get into the physical, et cetera, damaging part. But if the woman has to use her looks to get by, if you're an honest guy, it can't really be that emotionally great to have to cheat and steal and lie. And I think that's kind of left out of certain things of, cause I've know, also known guys who are models who have just, I mean, I had a guy who was a model and he was on all kinds of calendars. And he told me one day, he was just like, you know, I really wish I could meet a girl that would actually want to talk. And mm -hmm. we all laughed at him, but mm -hmm. he was just like, he, he was just <laughs> like, it's always movie bedroom. And he's like, and sometimes I just like want to talk about music or I want to like, and it sounds like, oh, where's the violin? But it was like, there was, so it's like that role of, it can't really be fun to have to be a hustler and a robber. I mean, it's probably fun when you're having the Dom Perignon and you have two gildas and you're in a limo, but there's got to be some kind of point where everybody's human. And, and so, to, so when you said that, it just made me think of, that we wouldn't really say that because it doesn't, it doesn't lead. And hey, you know what? It's not the same exact physical, emotional as what happens to women, but maybe he got his ass kicked 20 times. That can't be fun or physically, that could probably leave you with some scary thoughts or, you know, going through the world like that Warren Zevon song, Werewolves in London, like, you know, bring lawyers, guns and money. Like that kind of life can't be fun. Like, you know, get, so that, just, I'm sorry, that it might sound off, but it just made me kind of think, like, we don't know what demon I think it's on. Is. I think it's on because what I'm, what it just occurred to me as you were talking, Paul, is we were just talking about the opening scene where we're, it's the elevator to the level of the pavement. And right after he cheats these guys out of money, because he says, I know American sailors, you know, we know what he just did before he even admits to doing it. We know 
that he's working with a pair of loaded dice, but he's almost, right. he's getting mugged and he's right. possibly going to get killed until uh, Monson comes along with his little friend. Um, right. So, you know, I guess maybe that's why we see that. Maybe that is our, uh, that maybe that's our storyteller's way of bringing a little sympathy to that character right. that yes, he does yeah. cheat at dice, but he also puts himself in peril on a regular basis. Matt, you wanted to say something well, no, about I mean, that. I mean, there I mean like Broadway, uh, Broadway was a Boardwalk Empire where mm -hmm. like, you know, like you mm -hmm. the Commodore, he's got all his power, right? And so like in order to get power yourself, you have to do a lot of things that are very unscrupulous, um, but you still did them. I mean, so I mean, it's still kind of a little bit different position, but um, no, I mean, but before any of this, it's like every time Paul puts on his, on his glasses, I'm just waiting for him to make a point and just to shatter the whole conversation. In the back of my mind, I hear like, don't mess around with the guy. <laughs> yeah, is that a bad? I'm Where sorry. Is that a You know, I need to get myself. I want to make dramatic points and like throw in a pair of sh I mean, now that like oh, the internet. It's just because like it's just <laughs> the window right there. No, <laughs> <laughs> no it's not a. I'm digging it. I need dramatic effect. I need like you, you have resi resiste though. You have dramatic effect. Yeah, I, love that that's, I know what that means. I, I can get by on Spanish. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that was that was the other big revelation that, that, that Paul Paul is Paul is a uh, half Mexican. I mean, I, I feel differently about you already. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> In a good way, not It's very, it's very unique. It's very interesting. And I've, I've, I the other day, I'm in Ohio right now. And the other day, I saw, I saw a, and I'll just make this very quick. And we definitely won't go down this road. But I saw a uh, bumper sticker that said, "If you're here, learn to speak English." And just all that came to my mind was these things that you don't really say to someone in Spanish. And then I just thought, you know what, this isn't nice. Like, this isn't who I am. And I don't want to be having this part of me come out. And I didn't say anything, but the fact that I thought it, so I was kind of like, well, you know, you are your grandfather's grandson and you are part of your mother and it is insulting your, your, your heritage. But then on the other side, it's like, I can't really say, oh, well, she's just white because my dad's like two shades whiter than I am. So it is an interesting thing and a dynamic. So yeah, it's, I, I always just say that I'm lucky that I can be in the middle. And then these things we've been talking about uh, with females, I've told uh, Jean Marie before that uh, since I was 27 or 14, I've been that guy that women let hang in the room. And so I've gotten to hear teenage girls then my college friends and then now just go off about guys everything their husbands whatever and I just stay quiet and so I can listen and be like okay but yeah you were kind of in the wrong but I don't say that and kind of like <laughs> kind of look at you know kind of be like well, you know you weren't returning his calls and then you're wondering why he's mad so it's like so why I was watching Gilda I was kind of thinking of as I've been the guy, I don't, I'm not saying share, but I've been the guy where there's a girl between us, but then I've also been a girl or a guy who has had two girls playing off of each other to manipulate. Uh, so it, it is kind of a weird thing to look at that and to be able to, some people will tell me, there's no way you understand women. And I just go, okay, well, 27 of 41 years, I've been sitting in rooms with them, with them telling me deeply personal stuff. So 
I think that applies for something. Like I, I might not get my period, but I can at least say I know what bothers them. So <laughs> I like watching a movie about female characters because I see little quirks that I see my female friends do. Like, and it's so yeah. So that's what I was kind of taking from Gilda too. Was you know thinking of my model friend, like just being like, yeah, she could if she wanted to have two guys fighting over her or getting her gift or saying, you take her home, you do this. No, she's mine. No, she, you know, and it's like, it was totally made total sense. I've, I've, I've seen it happen in the 20 years I've known her. You run like a model. Nope, agent. There's always a price. Models? Like, you know, male models, you know, women like, how do you know all these models? Well, I, well, I'm from Hawaii. So a lot of people, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, yeah, it's just, a, it was just, a, it's definitely not an LA Hollywood thing. Like I know models. It's just that <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I just happened to be, I had one of my male model friends, a girl was talking to him once and she said to me, how do you hang out with him with how you look? <laughs> with those sunglasses, man. That's a, you and look. my friend got so mad. He was just like, what did you just say to my friend? So yeah, so it's, it's interesting to be around uh, a male model and a female model and to just be like, oh, hey, do you want this? Do you want that? By the way, I'm flying to Maui tomorrow. Would you like to go to my female model friend? She's like, I don't even know you. Why would I fly to Maui with you? So so I, so I could see in this Gilda character that how she 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 could just walk in a room and um you know it it's it's always giving me that point of view too that we that you had I think Matt you had mentioned about social roles of um where sometimes it's that like we were saying that that they've had to so I know there's been times where she's like I had to date a guy that made a little bit more money because. I had kids to take care of, so I don't like that I did that, but so then it's also kind of where you can take, as a friend, I'd be like, well, then you can't, I'm not getting too deep here, but I would kind of be like, well, if that's going to make you feel bad, then don't do it, you know, like, so that's where I kind of came from it, so I, so I really saw a lot of that in Gilda, that's why I've mentioned this stuff, is because I've seen, I've seen the power on both sides and how I think both sides have to have a responsibility in the power that it's not just blame Gilda, blame the rich casino owner, that it's, there's a dance and it takes, like the saying, it takes two to tango, I guess. Is what I would, I would has, I'd be hesitant to blame Johnny for, for the, 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 the ways of the world, you know, but I would definitely blame the tungsten guy, the, 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 the casino owner. That guy is like, that, that guy's a Bond villain. Mm. <laughs> oh, right, right. I no, think I say Bond villain the thing about Johnny is, I mean, we, she mentions marrying on the rebound. I mean, it appears that Johnny, what we might surmise, we can't be sure, like David was saying, we can't be absolutely certain because we're not really given the full picture of the details. Right. We're not given a backstory. We're not shown um, like a montage, like in Casablanca, right? But from what we can gather of what's being said, and Johnny doesn't deny it, it seems that Johnny like left her or something, that they were in a very deep relationship and, and he kind of just took off on her. And maybe we even get the impression that, what are, how do they both end up in Argentina? Like, yeah, see, it's like no, by no, accident, yeah. it's almost the implication is that if Johnny went off and did this, that she might've tried to find him right. or go after him. And then, and then in the midst of that, she meets Munson and, you know, she decides she's gonna, she's gonna, I mean, maybe he's, because he's talked about Johnny, maybe she 
gets wind that, oh, that's the person I, that who, who dumped me, who I now hate. Mm -hmm. So what better way to get back at him than marry his boss and just totally antagonize him. You're so right though, God. And I, and I would love to know what you guys think is Matt and, and David, that that's so true. Cause that's for me, one of the hard things about classic films, but that I went, went to them backers is that, uh, we're not given as much info, whether it was cut or, and the structure is different and we don't get the backstory. And so like, it's perfect what you just said, uh, Jean, um, who the heck knows? Could have totally been her fault, but we were having sympathy for her where it could have, it could have been mutual. It could have been all of a sudden I ran into my high school sweetheart. I mean, that part was where I was kind of like, are you going to give me anything? So we have, and that we would be a, you know, I was like, go ahead, go ahead. We have yeah. we have comments from the from the uh, from the uh, comment section. We have we have a uh, statements. Awesome. Comments. Questions and statements. Uh, one uh, one such statement comes from Laura Levinson. She says, "Shut up, Bogart is sexy as hell." Same, same. validation. Smoldering. <laughs> Bogart is Bogart. sexy. I don't. Bogart is a tr is like handsome in a traditional sense, but I agree with you, Laura. I do think that Bogart is sexy. But I think people can be sexy and not be handsome. I'm going to say that. I think people Maybe can be are, sexy and not right. handsome. There are many routes to sexy. Wait, when you're sexy, when you're written yes. sexy, lit sexy, there's a versus that Brad Pitt can just walk down the street and be sexy without grips and crew. Like Eddie Murphy says, put me in the movie, I'll kick anybody's ass, but I'm not a fighter. Like, that's where I would say about Bogart. Like, I don't think when he just walked into a place, girls went nuts the way they would if Bradley Cooper walked in a room. But great comment, and I don't, cool. I agree with how you feel. I, I got to agree with you, Laura. I, I do think he's sexy. All right. We got we uh, 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 a comment from Doug Jacobs, uh, last week's guest. He says, I can't get a solid connection, but I was wondering if you have any thoughts about being set in Argentina, given where uh, Adolf Eichmann was found later. Uh, did the filmmakers, you think, uh, know something about the migrations of Nazis to Argentina? Ooh, that's interesting. I think there there might have been rumblings uh, even that early, or or there might have been indications somehow that there were a lot of Nazi sympathizers um, in Latin America. But as we know, um, you know there was the famous film The Boys from Brazil, um, and there there is extensive documentation of Nazis um, fleeing uh, Germany and uh, ending up in South America. Um, so Argentina, Brazil, uh, hand, uh, Chile. Um, were also, um, because these nations still uh, very much um, had the legacy of favoring light-skinned people and the more Spanish uh, legacy of uh, colonialism. So they still had all of that place and, and rigidly uh, classist societies. Um, they hadn't undergone their equivalent of the Mexican Revolution in Mexico. So they were very favorable towards uh, this immigration of all of these um, of all of these Nazis. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's possible that, that uh, the filmmakers could have been somehow, even, at, even that early, uh, been keyed into that. Um, so this was 1946, so we know the war uh, was over. So uh, it's a short, very short turnaround time, but I think a lot of these classic films yeah, were <laughs> in a much shorter period. Um, so it's possible. That had been less than a year, so that's interesting. But I guess there's no timeline in films, right? I mean, 
I had oh, that's said, a great I'd question, by the way. The, yeah, it's a very good question. I had said near the top of the our conversation, and Doug, you're hearkening that that uh, there was an encouragement to to go to perceived safe areas during and after the war, because again, I mean, you had places like Dresden and Germany <clears throat> that were very war torn. Even after the war was over, you were not going to be traveling anytime soon to certain parts of France or the UK, because they were very, very, Italy too, they were war-torn. Um, and Argentina was a place where that kind of like exotic travel would have been encouraged, like Casablanca too. You know, so I, that, that's a really, that's a really, that's an excellent question. Because what, yeah, what David said too Sorry. about, there was, there was some discussion about Nazis fleeing to to South America, um, which that does make sense. And, some um, of the, and, and to respond to what Paul uh, said is that some of those guys did leave before the war was over. Some of them okay. knew that they were losing the war, you know, before right. the allies, you know, ended up in Berlin. A lot yeah. of them already knew. So a lot of them were already, there was a huge demoralization, um, you know, following. But the ones who, who had the money, the ones who had the money, money to flee or the assistance to flee um, would flee. And that was, that was one logical place. Like they talked about Morocco, same thing. Any place where it was perceived to be that there was a certain degree of neutrality to flee to, I suppose you would say. So that's really, that's a very compelling question. Good one, Doug. Very well, good. Well, since there's no timeline in the film, given that I doubt the world was really together if, if it's within eight months of a nuclear bomb being dropped no matter what the world where the world was the time or the air or the, the way we for, always forget that the air circulates so, uh my mom once told me about 10 years ago she said you know we always forget that we're just breathing in the iraq war air and i'm not being political but it's that it's just spinning around so it's kind of like so to think if a if a nuclear bomb was dropped that within a year later that that nobody's going to be traumatized or sad or so that's what I kind of like about some of those films is the year they were shot, just thinking what the crew might have been thinking or going through. I mean, like Billy Wilder's The Lost Weekend being about a guy with a drinking problem. It's like, well, while World War II was ending is when Hollywood's at its peak of alcoholism. Like, that's no shock. <laughs> like, it's also right after you know, he worked with Raymond Chandler on Double Indemnity. Right? And some people were saying The Lost Weekend was largely about Raymond Chandler. Some people do say that. Right. And, um, and, and, uh, you're back to being around your spouse all the time. Sorry, I had PTSD. PTSD. Well, P you know, this PTSD, was the wake exactly, of, exactly. This was the wake of PTSD. I mean, one of the first addresses of PTSD. Um, you know, the the Blue Dahlia with Alan Ladd, Veronica Lake, and William Bendix. The original intended ending. I hope I'm not going to be doing any spoilers because we haven't done the Blue Dahlia, but. The original intended ending was something involving a serviceman, which again, the Hayes Code and the and the um, U.S. Uh, uh, military would not have, would not, did not want to address issues regarding PTSD. Um, and I of think, course. Matt, you mentioned that um, we had other questions too. I don't want to, I don't want to lose yeah. anything else. Oh, yeah, sorry about that. Comments. No, yeah. no, that's, you're doing great. I mean, this is compelling stuff, guys. I think yeah, we very could have cool, entire, literally, we could have an entire episode just about dealing with movies that deal with things like complex PTSD. Coming home. Sorry, go ahead, Matt. You know, that I mean, that's so great. That's so cool. Yeah, questions. I love it. You know, post-war. It's very compelling. Yeah. 
Oh, I, I got mad on mute. I don't know what he's saying. Why did you mute me? Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, it just muted out. <laughs> just yeah, muted. You're right. I'm uncool. Yeah, you're right. I am uncool without my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's why you don't mess around with a guy in shades. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, no, he's got another comment about Argentina. Just Argentina offered a land grab for white Europeans. They offered uh, land and loads to businesses for Western Europeans who wanted to leave. It's part of a pattern of policy practiced in Argentina's time. Uh, it was an international, it was an intentional uh, whitening process. Um, you know, it goes along with conquest of desert, a lot of other things. Really, um, what, a, what, what a way, what, what, what a, yeah, bad, bad stuff in that country's time. Um, we, are, we are at an hour and 40 minutes though. So like, um, All right. we should consider. Wrapping. Okay. All right, yeah. thank you. I think, there are, I think there are, Political statements. I think there are political statements within Gilda. I think that in addition to the, the romantic melodrama and the film noir aspects, I think we're clearly meant to understand that there are and there are continuing politics. People, there was war profiteering. You know, there that did really happen. Um, and they did really pursue people who were engaging in war profiteering. Um, so even though the war is over corruption is not over. And, you know, these characters find themselves in the midst of this corruption. At a certain point, Gilda says, I, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I was afraid of him. He was crazy. Did you know he was crazy? And Johnny said, yeah, you really acted like you were scared of him. In reality, she was acting out against Johnny, not Munson so much. Her feelings about Munson weren't, didn't go deeply enough for her to ever feel a, a smoldering hatred toward him. She, I think she, that look on her face when she you know that wonderful the way it's lit let's talk about that a little bit too the way that gilda was lit when the characters are standing in shadows is very profound and there's that scene where he's talking about hate is the only emotion that warms me and she kind of comes out of the darkness into the light and looks at him for the first time like oh my god i think you might be a freaking sociopath and i married you you know so i think her fear is legitimate and I think she's looking for a way out and maybe her acting out is trying to provoke Johnny into kind of saving her from this madman, you know? So I'd love to hear more um, what you guys thought about all of these themes and others uh, as we wrap up, because that, that stands out to me that this, this, is, th there, this is a noir film. It is unique people or uh, of ordinary people in on extraordinary circumstances, the lighting, the tone, the political intrigue, the violence, you know, the, the, the romance that struggles and sputters and struggles some more, you know, the mystery and the suspense behind Munson's disappearance and, you know, then reappearance. All of these things play, and even the comic relief through our friend Pio, all of these elements really are very classically film noir. So, you know, I, I definitely want to hear more what you guys think about that. Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, watching the film, I mean, there, there, there's a lot to be said about the way in which, um, the way in which she interacts and with, and, and, and the arc of her character, how it starts off one way and we think that we're watching one thing and, and that you can blame me, the, the song, you know, put the blame on me, that all, all that, you know, that, that kind of, there's a real, there's a real, it's almost, it's, it's, a, some of it like defies description, you just have to watch it and you, you don't even know it, you just you feel it, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I don't know, kind of like Audrey Hepburn or something singing Moon River or like, uh, uh, or like Maria Felix, or there's just these great like screen uh, icons that you don't even, you can't even, you don't, you, you can't, you, put your, you can't really put your finger on it. It really defies description. You just have to like watch it and experience it. 
and it's certainly certainly Rita Hayworth is, is definitely um, in that category of, of um, screen performers. So uh, that's I mean like that's the biggest takeaway I have from it. That you just watch it and and just watch. I mean just behold. I mean like there's not it's not even a, a it, it, defi it defies critique. Defies it defies uh, criticism. Um, it just it just is. So um, you know, as, as you said, Paul just is. So um, yeah, I mean. Pretty much all the all the heavy stuff I already said. So like, watch it, watch Rita. Um, I would have to agree with uh, Gene that uh, some of the cinematography in this film is brilliant and, and solidly places it in that film noir category. There, there are really um, great uses of the lighting. A lot of the times, um, uh, Rita Hayworth would be backlit, and um, her, she herself would be uh, in soft focus or soft lit, but not just for the purpose that it would be in a lot of the old Hollywood films of, you know, putting the wrinkles out, but it was done stylistically for a purpose of showing that her character was uh, unsure or afraid or, you know, so it, it, it actually uh, enhanced the meaning of the film, service the plot. Um, speaking of the plot, though, uh, the plot of this film is pretty flimsy. Um, I, I, in, in, in referencing Notorious, what I like about Notorious is that the plot, the, the MacGuffin, the bigger structure of the film, um, it, it runs parallel to the romantic uh, uh, plot of the film. And as one is fulfilled, the other uh, two is fulfilled in somewhat of a goofy, clumsy way, but in this film, uh, the larger plot is largely ignored. Um, Munson dies, that's it. We never get any other fulfillment to that. And we get a questionable fulfillment of their relationship as well. Um, so yeah, I, I really say uh, beautiful cinematography. If you wanna see Rita Hayworth, one of the all time great uh, Hollywood actresses, bombshells in her absolute prime, if you want to see sexual innuendo and uh, hear some great sexually charged dialogue um, involving swimming, <laughs> some of the most erotic swimming dialogue you will ever hear in your life, um, you know, watch Kill Them. Uh, but otherwise, uh, if, if you want to watch uh, similar movies uh, that I think will scratch some of the same, issues, I would uh, recommend. Of course, Casablanca and the Good. All right, is it my turn? Yes, sir. Okay, Never I would shade. say, I would say, you said no shades. No, please. Oh, okay. Man in the shade. No, um, I want to, I want to say, uh, you know, I really appreciate it coming on. Uh, if I could just like take thirty seconds to say something about sweet smell of success, I would, I would love. Uh, anyone listening and you guys fans to go check out the last episode if you missed it um of course you guys probably discussed it uh that was one of oliver stone's biggest uh influences to write wall street the bud fox gordon gecko character um i was a big burt lancaster fan because my grandmother was so i uh loved um oh gosh elmer gantry uh, I skipped a movie one day at a classic film festival. I said, I don't want to see it. And it was from here to eternity. So I would have seen that for the first time on the big screen. I know, uh, feel free to delete my screen right now. But, uh, for Gilda, <laughs> um, I just want to say that it was really cool. And I believe films uh -huh. always find you. Oh, sorry. Oh, I, 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 oh, no, no worries. 
I was. I just want to say, I think films always find you when they're supposed to. So it was really cool to come on and see a film and talk about it that you've known about for, like I said, for 25 years and wondered what it was and wondered why people talked about it. Um, and I would definitely suggest that you see it as a as the cultural icon scene, but also as just a something that's nice that's not so in a structure and it's not so formulated. And it is kind of the end of an era before we get into like before Brando hits the scene and before acting kind of changes forever. And uh, yeah, so I think that's really cool. And then also just take a look at some of the social topics that go on and really learn that uh, some things aren't going to change. So we can work towards changing them. We cannot contribute and we can always fight for them but they're there so i think we can look at working in the kind confines of them which is the you know gilda and using beauty and all that stuff so uh so yeah so with that i just want to say thank you to the people that asked questions and it's very nice to meet you guys and uh if you ever do true foes the 400 blows i would uh i would pay to have myself invited back I like that movie so much, but I but I'd be okay if I wasn't. But that's the only time I would ever say invite me somewhere. Is that movie just means so much. So and thank you for what you guys are doing to service film and service art and uh, talk about the bigger picture. That's what's so important to me. So thank you for that. Well, I'm very appreciative you came and joined us, Paul. And yeah, I love you. your insights. And I Paul is Paul is humble. He was very passionate about coming on the show and I loved his insights as he was sharing them with me before we even joined and his excitement and being part of it. It meant a lot. And I want to say to the audience, if you like this Glenn Ford, Rita Hayworth pairing, there was a movie made later called Affair in Trinidad. I believe it was around 1950. Mm. A lot of people said it was so similar to Gilda that maybe it was almost kind of a rehashing, but it's worth watching for you film files who, especially who like that pairing and who are interested in film noir and that era, it's, it's definitely worth checking out. I don't believe it's part of the collection, but it kind of touches on our film of the day. And I'm just really, really grateful for uh, the questions as well and the people listening and you guys all of you had uh, really fascinating insights and I, I just I really enjoyed it thank you I'm seeing Gilda in a different way so very cool yeah I look forward to seeing it again too so thank you thank all, thank all of you guys for your time and with what's going on in the world and thanks for your time whether it wasn't going on in the world I appreciate that yeah well thank you everyone for joining us it's been a DAW presentation DAW Center okay. for Arts Wait, oh. I got a preview next week's oh, episode. Yes. My, my bad, I apologize. Yes. Okay, so, uh, so we've gone through uh, our, our first round of special guests here, and I get to bring in my special guest, who is John Cantu, a filmmaker, a film editor, trailer editor. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited to announce his selection for next week's uh, The Criterion Collective, Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon. Oof. The presentation doesn't <laughs> <laughs>